0: Today's scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common.
1: set this aside here. Good morning, everyone. I am Eugene, and uh, it's been a real blessing, real delight to be with your community this past weekend. And uh, I'm going to be really real here. uh, Right before, you know, just sitting down, you know, I just happened to casually ask, hey, how long are generally sermons on Sunday mornings? And they're like, 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, hmm, Okay. I've been furiously cutting. (laughs) So we'll see how how it goes here. We're just going to trust and go with the flow, shall we? Um, One of my spiritual heroes is a pastor and author, Eugene Peterson. Uh, His books on pastoral ministry uh, impacted me profoundly, and you might know him from uh, The Message, which was his popular paraphrase of the Bible in modern English. And when Eugene Peterson passed away in 2018, his son gave uh, the eulogy in which he described the way uh, Peterson was able to fool millions of people with all of his creative insights that he offered over decades of ministry. And he fooled everyone into thinking that he was saying something new each week. When in reality, Peterson really only had one sermon. And Peterson's son said, uh, they didn't know how simple it all was. Now, I'm not dying, but, you know, hopefully. But similarly, I think I've also realized, uh, and many people have realized, that I really only have one sermon, too. Uh, And some of you have probably figured it out by now over the course of this weekend. So yeah, I'm not that complicated. So that's my final opportunity to share with you today. Uh, I'd like to share a simple secret. This is my one sermon. So if you're just joining us, we've been talking about what it means to be together, and we've been learning about how to be the church from the very first church written about in Acts 2, and today I want to talk about how the church can grow. I want to draw your attention to Acts two forty-seven, 47, and I, the slides are going to be all out of order, uh, so just bear with me. Let's see, is that going? Well, Acts two forty-seven. Reads, they broke bread in homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And get this, listen to this part. They enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And just imagine that. They enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily. That's amazing, because it seems so very different from what many churches are experiencing right now. Let's see where we are with this. Okay, pretty good. I think it's safe to say that Christians today are generally not enjoying the favor of all the people. In fact, it can feel like quite the opposite. Instead of being seen as salt and light of the world and a blessing and being known by our love, Christians are often described as judgmental, hypocritical, close-minded, right? News stories of top-down abusive leadership, cover-ups and corruption in religious institutions seem to be surfacing now on a regular basis. And Christians, particularly uh, evangelicals, are depicted in the media as being anti-science, bigoted, culturally irrelevant, way worse. And doesn't it make you wonder, how can a movement that is based on such good news look and sound so bad? And we can debate a little bit about whether all the negative attention is warranted or not. But I think we can all at least acknowledge that Christianity has a pretty serious image problem. Are we agreed? And many of you feel this problem acutely. In your workplaces, your classrooms, among your friends and family. And we don't want to be known as, quote unquote, however way you want to interpret this, those kinds of Christians. So we learn to fly under the radar Just be nice, try to blend in. It seems like study after study from Pew, Gallup, Barna, and others all seem to point to the same downward trend, that church attendance has been in rapid decline in the U.S. for the past 20 years, especially among younger generations. When you look at the numbers for uh, millennials and Gen Z, it looks like a nosedive, And all this can seem very discouraging. It might seem that the Lord just isn't adding to our number daily, those who are being saved. At least not now, and not here. So the question is, why not? And I'm sure we might have many ideas, but I think we can all agree that it's certainly not for lack of trying, right? Christian ministries spend millions, literally billions of dollars each year trying to grow. They attend conferences, hire experts and consultants, they purchase books, invest in facilities and technology, all to drive growth. And yet, despite all that, the fastest-growing churches in the world are not here in America, the land of giant... Let's see, that's not working. Can we go to the next slide? Um, not the land of giant-sized mega churches. They're in places like Iran and China. They don't have stages... Lights or haze machines, they're underground, small, mostly led by women. Maybe they even look a bit like the church in Acts 2. Now, I'm sure they have their problems. You can go to the next. Just a blank slide, I think. But somehow the early church had a simple way of living and loving that was compelling and winsome to outsiders. They didn't have any of the resources or organizational or production expertise that we have now, yet they grew and they multiplied. I mean, having resources, expertise, certainly not a bad thing. Gifts from God. But perhaps the early church had something that went beyond technique and technology Perhaps they had something even more potent. What did they have? The answer is simple and obvious, right? But f- before we get into that, whenever we talk about church growth, I want us to become aware of the fact that we generally assume that bigger means better. We have a tendency to value size, right? Right? When my mother was alive and living in Korea, whenever we talked on the phone, she would often manage to sneak in this seemingly innocuous question. You know, we'd be on the phone. She would ask, how's church? And I'd say, oh, things are going pretty well. How many people do you have now? I'm like, mom, if there are a lot of people, we think it must be good. And That's sometimes true, but not always Church growth gurus declare, healthy things grow, implying that if you're not growing numerically, you must be doing something wrong. Yeah, healthy things grow, but so do a lot of unhealthy things. Next, next, that's an example of something unhealthy that grew very large. So I'm not so sure that's the only metric we should be using. You can advance a slide. According to Soren Kierkegaard, Christian you no know, existentialist philosopher, it's a mouthful. The crowd is untruth. He wrote, For to win a crowd is not so great a trick. One only needs some talent, a certain dose of untruth, and a little acquaintance with human passions. In other words, crowds are easy to manipulate. In other words, it's not that difficult to draw a crowd and to grow big, popular, and powerful. Size is an unreliable measure of whether we're doing the right things. Look at some of these scriptures that are coming up. Jesus often describes the kingdom of God as small but potent. Right? It's a tiny mustard seed that grows into a tree that birds find refuge in. It's a little bit of yeast that works through a whole batch of dough to make it rise. It's the narrow door, right? a little pearl of great price. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And it's important to note that in the way in which Acts 2 describes this growth of the early Christians. In Acts 2.47, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice it doesn't say they added to their number daily. It doesn't say their strategic plan or outreach program or new worship style. or you know Those things didn't add to their number. It did not say the popular preacher or the great brand or professional production quality. Don't get me wrong. All of these things actually kind of work but the writer of Acts seems to be emphasizing who is really doing the work here. The Lord added to their number. The Lord. And what kind of growth was this? These weren't just consumers coming to watch a show. These weren't just Christians moving around from one church to another. These were people who were being saved, which in the Greek means that they were being rescued, healed, Made whole. And they weren't just switching religious teams. People's lives were being transformed by the gospel. So how did they do it? No buildings, no professional pastors, no privilege, no power. Yet somehow they were able to be a movement that was unstoppable. What was it? What did they have that was so powerful and compelling? It's simple, obvious, but here it is. My one sermon, it's the only one I've got. You ready? And I bet we can all say it together. They had love, but not a sentimental love. I mean, unstoppable, Holy Spirit fire, sacrificial, barrier-breaking, guilt and shame erasing, Reconciling and healing, lay down your life for your sister and your brother, world-changing love. The most amazing thing is, anyone can do it. Anyone can do this. They shared things in common, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They welcomed foreigners and strangers into their homes. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But what did the apostles teach? They had no Bible yet. They had no developed doctrine. The answer is they probably taught what Jesus told them to teach, which was how to obey everything Jesus commanded. That's in the Great Commission. And what did Jesus command? He commanded them to love one another, of course. As I have loved you, So you must love one another. Thanks for following along on that. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is the mark, the distinctive characteristic of the church. My opinion is that the early Christians' main curriculum wasn't theological or doctrinal at all. That stuff came later. I think their main curriculum was how to love like Jesus did. That's what they taught. And that's what they practiced. And maybe that's what we need to get back to as well. If there is one thing Christians are supposed to be good at, it's love. But that's not so much the case nowadays, is it? If there's one thing we're supposed to be known for, it's love. But again, that is not the case these days, is it? I still believe In the power of small, local churches that do the slow, unglamorous, faithful work of loving and welcoming people in Jesus' name. Why? Because that's my story. I've always had a complicated relationship with church. I was raised in church. And when I say that, I mean my dad was a choir director, my mom was a Sunday school director, which meant I spent a lot of time at church. And that had both positive and negative effects on me. On one hand, I grew up learning a lot about the Bible and Jesus. But on the other, I had a front row seat to four church splits before I hit high school. Needless to say, I heard and saw a lot of things that confused my understanding of God and church. For all the talk about God's goodness and love and forgiveness, there was also an awful lot of gossip and slander. I saw power being abused by people in authority. I saw pride being disguised as spirituality. And as a result, I grew very skeptical and cynical of the church. So, sometime in high school, there are a lot of factors that went into this. I just walked away. I believed in God and Jesus, I just wasn't sure it made any difference. If Christians could be just as petty and prideful as non-Christians, then I didn't understand how following Jesus could matter all that much. Many young people today are feeling and seeing the same exact thing. And so for a few years, I was just lost. I was just searching, right? Not knowing where to find it. And so long story short, Uh, I was truant from high school for an entire year. Uh, I was just kind of, I don't know what I was doing. I was just kind of hanging out being a punk. Uh, And when my parents finally found out, it was way too late to do anything anything about it. And so they gave me a choice to either stay in New York City where, where I grew up and continue down this path that I was going or to move with them to Korea and start fresh. And so I chose to move and go with them to Korea. And so I had to repeat the year, of course, that I, I uh, to make up for the time that I just hung around being a punk. Uh, but in Korea, I continued to mostly hang around being a punk. And so I barely graduated high school. Okay? And I graduated at the bottom of my class. I won't ask if anyone here was at the bottom of their class. But by the end of my senior year, I didn't know I would go to college. I, I thought, literally, I would probably play pool or something and try to hustle people for money um, but it was it was like midsummer, and my sister just handed me a random application I didn't apply to any schools because I was like who's going to take me um, my sister gave me an application to Gordon College which is Christian liberal arts school in Massachusetts and I just filled it out I was like well, what what the heck sure why not and they must have been trying to fill a quota, you know, they, they took me. So literally like a couple weeks later, two weeks later, I was on a plane and I landed in Wenham, Massachusetts. Weirdest thing ever, and went from Seoul to Wenham, Massachusetts. Just think about the visuals there, right? Very strange. I was not going to church, even though it was a Christian school. Uh, by sort of like a leap of faith, maybe because of my natural skepticism, I wanted to study the Bible. So I declared biblical studies as my major. Um, mostly because I'm just like, mm, what is this about? I'm not sure. Um, but I was not going to church because I wasn't sure I believed in it. But regardless, I, I tried visiting a few churches, and, but they reminded me too much of, what, of other churches that I'd seen. They're trying too hard to impress. I wasn't buying it. Like I said, kind of skeptical, kind of cynical. But finally, I was led to give this one small church, you know, a, a try. And to be honest, it was not very good. Uh, the people were socially awkward. Um, the music was not good. It was run by just like a few young, inexperienced seminarians. They had no idea what they were doing. But I kept coming back. Why? Because I could tell they were real. They weren't trying to... Pretend to be spiritual. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They were genuine in their brokenness and and their sin. And yet they accepted and loved each other deeply. They were vulnerable and they were honest. And somehow, in the midst of that, I started to believe in church again. I started to believe that a church could be a safe, accepting, and loving place, a place where I could be myself, a place where I could find God. Friends, church works. It changes lives, but we have to understand what a church really is at its essence. It is a community. It is the people. It is a community centered on love, and that's how Jesus is going to show up. Not with flashy production or slick marketing or impressive anything. Jesus is going to show up when we, the body of Christ, show up to do the work of love in relationships, that's it. That is the real secret to true true church growth. And by growth I don't mean getting bigger, although that could happen. I mean becoming more loving, which is always 100% without fail the sign of real spiritual maturity. Churches are family. A home base, a place of love and belonging. Church is a school of love where people practice being loving so that they can become more like Jesus. And so church, I want you to keep doing what you're doing, but make sure you keep the reason you're doing it front and center. And remember that there are people all around us who are lonely and starved for meaningful connection and community and relationships. And you don't have to worry about numbers. Jesus never commanded us to grow. He did command us to go and make disciples. In other words, we're supposed to bring God's love into our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, wherever God has already placed us. And if the goal is to genuinely love people, then maybe it's not as hard as it sounds. My hope, my prayer, is that Grace Way will continue to be the kind of church that people desperately need. One that would embody the love of Christ in such a way that would break down barriers for people who are spiritually hungry and longing for connection, maybe like a, you know, a lost teenage punk, you know, one day. And so in the eulogy that Eugene Peterson's son gave for his father, he said his father's one sermon was the same on every Sunday in every book that he wrote. And his father said these same words to him every night. He said, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And so I want to leave you with that simple reminder. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are a good father who loves his children. God, I pray for this church that you would open their hearts and their minds to be able to see and receive and just know the depth of your love, that they may be filled to overflowing, that they would share that love with one another and they'll share that love with the world. God, I pray for clarity, for a calling upon this church to be the body of Christ to be your hands and feet in the world. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.